Sinful values expressed in culture. So sinful, that is which that which is opposed to God. Values, things that we hold dear. And the sad part of that is we're holding dear something that is opposed to God. And so if we're Christians, we ought not to be holding things dear that are opposed to God. So sinful values that are expressed, they're evidenced, they're demonstrated in some way, shape, or form. So that's the world... And then what's the other one, the flesh? Sinful values based in individuals. Okay, sinful values expressed in individuals or to make it really personal, sinful values expressed in you and expressed in me. And we said that the world is basically a big collection of a bunch of me's expressing our inherently sinful values all over the place, right? And that's why this place is such a screwed up place. Um, I mean, to be frank, right? We also talked about how that these inherently sinful values that are expressed in you and I are basically idols of the heart, right? Because we idolize these things, we value, we cherish, we esteem these sinful things greater than we esteem God, and we idolize those things, and we recognize the idols that we've erected in our hearts by identifying those things that we're willing to sin to get, right? And we looked at Luke chapter 6, where it talked about 
a good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit. So eventually what's going to come out of your mouth, what's going to come out in your life, is going to be the demonstration of the ugliness of your heart. The idols of your heart. And we also talked about that your greatest enemy is not outside of you, but it's on the inside of you, right? Because James chapter 1 talks about how the source of temptation, sure, but we can say that the devil tempts us and the world tempts us, right, in in, in one respect, because they're dangling all these really juicy-looking things in front of us. But ultimately, the real source of temptation isn't in the thing that's dangling in front of us, but it's the lust of our hearts that is being tempted by that. And so the problem really isn't on the outside, the problem is on the inside. So then I say in your review, based on Luke 6 and James 1, we said that while the world presents things that tempt us or uh, provides occasions for us to sin, our greatest problem is inside of us, not outside. It is always our choice to sin. So you can never blame Satan, you can never blame your spouse, you can never blame your brother or your sister, you can never blame anything else other than yourself when you choose to sin because you made the choice. You were carried away by your own lust and enticed. I was carried away by my own lust and enticed. And that gives birth to sin, and sin ultimately gives birth to death. James 1. So it is always our choice to sin, therefore a change in our circumstances is not the ultimate solution to our sin problem. Let me clarify that, okay? A change in our circumstance is not the ultimate solution to our problem. Let me let me tease that out, though, right? Because you could say, well, what about a guy who is an alcoholic? He needs a change in his circumstances, right? He needs to stop going to bars. And we would all say, yep. And that change in the circumstance isn't going to change him, but it's sure, certainly going to help him in the process of change, right? Because we're he's at least alleviating, he's removing some of the occasion, right? Um, but there's a difference between getting out of that sort of circumstance and then getting out of a completely different circumstance where it would be sin to get out of that circumstance, like, if you got a crappy marriage and your spouse is just an, an idiot and, and you, you want to get out, right? Well, if there's no biblical grounds to get out, that would be sin to get out of that, right? Mm-hmm. Even though the circumstance might help provide more occasion <laughs> than it would if you're not in that, the... Re- the the, the solution isn't to get out of the circumstance. It's to fix you, and hopefully your spouse would be fixed. So since your flesh, and, and this is this is a key, and, and I can't say that I took all this for myself because I'm not smart enough to come up with all that. That's, that's all Paul Tripp stuff. Um, but since your flesh is always attached to you, right? Like Edwina can't go out of here and detach that sinful, inherently sinful values that are expressed in her, she can't detach that from her, right? Nor can Mallory, nor can I, nor can Wanda, none of us can. We can't just like, whoop, let's set that aside. So, since your flesh is always attached to you, you will always be taking you with you when you go and try to escape the circumstances that you don't like. So, Ultimately, the real place of change that needs to take place is in you and in me. So therefore, I say that the only solution, the only solution in our fight in this process of sanctification is the continual transforming work of God's grace in our lives. And if you, um, well, I guess you have it written down already, but Titus 2 is one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture, and it talks about how the grace of God The grace of God teaches us to basically put off ungodliness and put on Christ's likeness. The grace of God is active and it's transforming. 
and it, and, it, and it promotes that sort of behavior in us. So that was last week, and that was a lot of review, more than I normally do. So this week, the goal of Lesson 10. The goal of Lesson 10 is to discover some of Satan's tactics to derail us in our sanctification. I say some. <laughs> the reason is, is because probably as many ways that we can sin, there's that many different tactics of Satan. And we're only going to look at a handful. So it's to discover some of Satan's tactics to derail us in our sanctification, and then also how to stand firm in the face of those attacks. How can you and I stand firm and not fall away? <clears throat> how can we stand firm? So last week, we identified these three enemies, and I want to just keep pointing you back to Scripture because as much as I would love to wax eloquent on my opinion, my opinion doesn't really matter. Um, so I, re- I want to make sure that the things that I'm saying um, are being fully and adequately supported by the text of Scripture. So the three enemies of God's or of God's grace in our lives in the process of sanctification, enemies of our growth. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler. So you followed the ways of the world, number one, and you followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Listen to that description of Satan. He's the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He's the ruler of this world, the spirit who is now at work in who? Not those who are obedient. Those who are disobedient. He is the ruler that you are following when you were dead in your transgressions and sins. When you used to live in that realm, Satan was your ruler. He was your king. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time. And how did we live? We were gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature, I like... There's another translation, I think it's a Nazi, that says we were objects of wrath. Yikes. We weren't just deserving of wrath, we were objects of God's wrath. And we were just objects of God's wrath. So the world, the flesh, and the devil, and this week we're looking at the devil. So, my question to you is, who is Satan? Who is Satan? And I'm... Okay, just for last week I learned, or two weeks ago, whenever I did a PowerPoint, I learned a valuable lesson. You guys are like totally zoned in on the PowerPoint, and then you write down like the one or two things that you need to write down, and then you're like, so I hardly put much up here this week, because we need to interact, we need to talk, we need to not be junior hires, because we're all adults, even though I act like a junior hire still. So, who is Satan? Fallen angel that wanted to be like God. Fallen angel that wanted to be like God. He's a jerk who's like ruined a lot of people I love in my life. Okay. He's a jerk who's ruined a lot of people that Ashley loves in her life. Oh, jeez, Jim, man. And he is the devil. Yeah, no wonder. So, so, Anyone else? Okay. Hey, did you hear that? Did you hear that? He just said that the devil is supposed to be beautiful. He masquerades as children of light, and you Such can't a, be you can't be him. Such a loving so church. Wow. Dana did. Sorry, Jim. Now we're putting me up to it. So Satan, I know where you live, Chris. Um, a boring lion seeking to. Okay. Yep. <laughs> So he is an angel. If he's an angel, is he part of the creator or part of the creation? He's part of the creation, right? He was a created being. Now, what day was he created? People debate. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, somewhere in there, angels were created, right? So I think it's important. Hey, guys. Man, now we're really in junior high. Yeah. <laughs> At some point in time in the creation week, they were created. They're created beings. So Satan was created. Colossians 1 verse, 1, uh, verse 16 says, For in him, as in Christ, all things were created. Things in heaven, so that would include the angelic host, 
and things on earth, visible and invisible. Invisible would include the angelic realm. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So he's created. At the very end of the creation week, what does God say? Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. He's very good. He says that everything was very good. Okay. So, day seven, God rests, looks at everything. This is good stuff. Hmm. Then all of a sudden, Genesis chapter three, we find what? Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat from that tree in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Did God say that? Not quite like that, right? You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from your, or when you, wait, yeah, when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Hmm, so what happened? Genesis 131, everything is very good. Genesis chapter 3, we find Satan in the form of a snake tempting Eve. This is not a trick question. Oh, yes. What do we find? What happened? She was disobedient. Who? Well, <coughs> she was disobedient. Well, Eve was, but you could see. But, he tempted her. But he yeah, didn't but think it was good. Satan right. didn't like his Eve. Yeah, sin entered humanity via Adam and Eve, right? Adam, because he was the head of the human race. But we find prior to. Adam and Eve sinning, that sin had already occurred, right? Because the serpent is coming in this super crafty, stealth-like way, and he is slithering his way with lies and schemes to get Eve to sin. So what happened? 2 Peter 2 talks about how angels sin. Jude 6 talks about how angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling. There's these veiled references throughout Scripture that talk about there's this massive rebellion in the angelic realm led by yours truly, Satan. Matthew 12, 24. In that text, the word is, uh, Satan's name is Beelzebub, but he is called the prince of the demons. He's the prince of all of the fallen angels. So we have not only is Satan created, he is rebellious. Right? He has opposed God. Number three, based simply on the, the meaning of his name, Satan means adversary. He is our adversary. He is opposed not only to God, but all of God's people. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and you followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. 1 Peter 5, 8. Chris, I think you alluded to this. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil... Listen to this description. Prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He is our adversary. He is on the prowl. 2 Corinthians 4.4 The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. So he's created, he's rebellious, he's our adversary. He's also really powerful. We'll get to Ephesians 6 a little bit later, but verse 12 says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
those those descriptive terms of authority, of a power, of, of spiritual forces, these are not soft, pansy-like terms. I mean, these are, are forceful, powerful terms that that Satan is being used to, or is being described as. 2 Timothy 2, verse 26, talks about how the devil has the ability to trap false teachers. He has taken them captive to do his will. You have to have power to take stuff captive. But, thankfully, he's limited. If any of you have ever read the book of Job, we know that he is limited by God's sovereign plan. Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, Satan goes before God on several occasions. And he wants to just torch Job and light him up. And God allows him, it says, don't take his life. But it was only by God's permission. So there's a limitation to the power and the work of Satan. And number six, Satan is a defeated foe. Satan is a defeated foe. Genesis 3.15 promises this shortly after the fall. And I will put, God is speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, that is Eve's ultimate offspring, this is, this is looking forward in a prophetic way towards Jesus. He says, Jesus will crush your head. He will completely defeat and destroy you. And you will strike his heel. You'll give him a bruise. You'll hurt him. But in the end, Jesus will crush you. John 16 verse 11 describes the devil as the prince of the world who now stands condemned. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. This is one of my favorite texts of scripture. Listen, listen just to the, you might even need to close your eyes, but just envision this scene. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it all away, nailing it to the cross. Now, here's the picture. Imagine the scene in some sort of movie where there's this really narrow, like, middle of the city center road. And you got the king, the king's castle at the end of it. And you have, like, all these tall buildings with all these people sticking out on their porches, watching as the king drags his defeated enemy behind him towards the castle. And with that scene in mind, he says, verse 15, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And here's Jesus, having been crucified, buried, and risen. And as he rises from the dead, he's marching through the streets with a defeated Satan and all his foes in his wake and all his people cheering you can kind of get that vision of like what it was like when David you know was going through the streets dancing and and all the people were cheering Saul is slain his thousands but David is ten thousands and you get the picture of all the chorus of God's people Jesus is our king he is victorious because he has slain Satan Hebrews 2.14 says Since all the children have flesh and blood, he too, that is Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. You see, Satan, thank God, is defeated Mm -hmm. by the power of Christ. So, how in the world is he still so stinking influential? (laughs) You know he is, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he is. He's the prince of this world. He, as if you read your, your article, he tempts us, he accuses us, he deceives us. These are three big categories in which he he tries to, to thwart our sanctification. So how, how does that, I mean, theologically, how does that work? I don't have a good answer, by the way. I'm just throwing that out there. He hasn't been 
He's defeated in the sense that Christ's death gives us victory over the sin that Satan's rule causes, but he's not completely um, done away with yet. So he's still active, um, and that won't happen until the end of Revelation when he's cast into the lake of fire. So God is still allowing him to be active, and as long as he's active, he has the ability to destroy people. We know, according to Job, God's given them the okay to do that. How that works, I don't know. Neither do you. <laughs> and any good man that can t- try to tell you that he has got got that whole thing fully figured out, run away. <laughs> run away very quickly. So, how in the world... In the face of Satan's continued attacks, because we live in a sin-cursed world with a bunch of sinful yous and me's. So how do we live in a way where we can stand firm in the face of Satan's attacks? I want to spend the remainder of our time looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. It says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. Why? So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, which it will, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand... Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions and with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. And here's how I want to approach our discussion. So um, it's going to be part me telling you stuff, and it's going to be part you answering questions. But here's how I want to approach our discussion of the armor of God. And it's this. We're going to look first at the piece of armor. I'm going to give you a brief explanation of, of what we're talking about. And what I what I want us to do is I want us to look at this in a meditative sort of way. Not a new age humming or anything. But I want you to think about looking at this text from different angles. One angle, okay, what is the armor? But another angle, if God is equipping you with a certain piece of armor, what is that armor there for? Like, what attack is, is, is he equipping you for? Or is he preparing you for? Is he protecting you against? So that would be number two. So how is Satan attacking you? Why is God telling you you need a helmet of something? What is that helping you to do? Or what is that keeping or protecting you from? And then three, so how does Satan's attack seek to injure us? What is what is the, um, I guess, kind of like the application? What is, what is, if he attacks us and we bite, how is that going to hinder our growth, our sanctification? And then how can we continue to grow in that area so that we can be firm, so that we can stand, so that when the onslaught of Satan comes, we can take, we can stand up. So, with that in mind, I'm going to keep this thing up for the remainder of the time, so that you can kind of keep these these things, and we're just going to kind of tick through in a sequential fashion each piece of the armor. So, the first piece of armor is the belt of truth. The belt of truth. I think this is referring to sound doctrine. Believing what is right. So you're going to put on the belt of truth. You need to believe the right kind of stuff. 
You need to be sound in doctrine. What is Satan's attack to that? How is Satan going to try to attack you um, in having sound doctrine? He's going to attack by means of corruption. He is going to try to corrupt your sound doctrine. Ephesians 4.14 This is in the context which we looked at a few weeks ago with respect to the church. This is in the context of the maturity of the believers as the diversity of the church is employing their gifts. And when people are mature, they're going to be strong and steadfast. But when they're immature, Paul writes, and no longer be like infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Think doctrine. And the cunningness and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. How is Satan going to derail you? He is going to corrupt your theology. 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4, For the time will come when people will no longer put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Yikes. So Satan, his agenda is to corrupt you, to corrupt your theology. And sometimes it might be really overt, and other times it might be really, really subtle. So, how does that kind of attack injure you? How does that injure you and your spiritual growth and your ability to withstand Satan's onslaught? Belief belief determines behavior, so if you have the wrong belief, your behavior is not usually going to be right. Okay. That's I'm, that's interesting that you said that because that's almost exactly what I have right here. So there you go, A plus plus. <laughs> Any other thoughts? Cracked into your mind. It's a hard place to crack into. Very, very scared. Any other thoughts? I mean, I think she's right. Bad theology is going to result eventually in bad behavior. The emphasis here is on what you are believing. So, what we believe affects how we behave. If we don't think that God is is going to judge, that's going to affect the way we live, right? I mean, think, think about the way Paul writes some of his letters. Like, you go to Romans, and he get and he goes through and he's preaching hard about the universality of sin, and, the, and everybody's under condemnation, and then he, he extols the, the awesomeness of God's grace. And then he gets to chapter 6, having said, hey, there, because of God's grace, there's no condemnation, you have peace with God, you've been justified, you've been declared righteous, this is all great stuff. And then, you, then he immediately combats what wrong theology because it's very easy to just take that next step and go awry right because in 6 1 he says oh so should we just keep on sinning so that grace can abound because right because if you sin God's grace is triumphs over sin right and he's like no 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 you're not thinking right right bad theology would result in bad behavior That's just one of a gazillion examples we could go through, like in the book of Galatians, where there's this conflation of law and grace. And you have people saying, well, you got to be circumcised. you got to observe all these rituals and feasts and blah, 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 blah. And then they're forcing everybody else to do that. It's salvation by the law. That doesn't save. It never has and it never will. Bad theology results in bad behavior. But what about those people that there's good theology and then bad yes. people? I mean, not bad yeah. people, but no. they choose to follow Satan. Yes. Even though they're intelligent and they know good theology. But here is the difference. Because I was actually thinking about that on the, on the Ooh, way. that's here. scary. See, I mean, this is like. Ooh. I mean, Very yeah. Nice Especially if you're thinking the same thing. Great minds think. seem to like. Oh, yeah, your yeah. dad. Yeah. Great like minds. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
what we believe affects our behavior. Belief is steps beyond just knowledge, right? Because demons know. And there's a sense in which they believe that's true, but it's not the type of saving faith. It's not the, I, I, I know it, I get it, I agree with it, and now I unreservedly trust in it, right? But what we believe will result in our behavior. So I think that's the key, is the belief, not just the mere knowledge. That's my only answer for you. So how can we, how can you and I grow in this area of doctrine so that we can be stabilized, so we can stand firm when Satan just starts bombarding us with stuff? Study. Read Wayne Grudem, right? <laughs> well, yeah. Or Dr. McHugh. Yeah. Study. Take Dr. or Dr. Ken's not a doctor yet. Take Ken's class, Master Plan for Life. Come to church. Listen to God's word being preached. Be accountable to each other. Right? Be in a good church for a long, long time. Because over a long, long period of time, even though you might not be a, a walking concordance or a, you know, a cross-reference, you, you will have like this grid ingrained in you that you don't even realize you have. And you're like, hmm, I don't know, but that doesn't sound like Breastplate of righteousness. It's a piece of armor. I believe this is practical righteousness or just like real life obedience. Yep. I want to go back to that because I believe that my grandparents are believers, but they're Lutheran and have totally different theology than what we would have. So how can you say that your theology... We have different theology. I mean, good good men can disagree on theology, but you're Absolutely. you're saying that your theology is going to result in your behavior. But if you're having different theology, you're going to have different behavior. But that doesn't ultimately mean that the end result is wrong. I would agree and disagree. I think. Um, I think that, for instance, there are areas of theology where good men can disagree. Like, where we can have room for disagreement. And who gets to make that choice, So, like, I might think one thing about eschatology, and Dr. Combs might think another thing about eschatology. And in the end, like, what do you do? You know, um... Okay, so now we're dealing with a little bit more specific concerns, right? Now we're dealing with, okay, we have to interpret Scripture to see whether infant baptism is appropriate, whether communion, the way they do it, is appropriate, because it's not just merely a commemorative memorial. Um, typically, Lutheran theology, if I have understood it correctly, I don't want to be unfair, but typically Lutheran theology has... has um, added to the ordinances of communion and baptism some measure of salvific merit. And if that is what someone believes, that's bad theology because it's anti-scripture. No, but that's not anti-Christ, anti-God. I mean, uh, whether, well, but I think it is because it's God... Be baptized to go to heaven. Correct. You don't have to, you don't have to be baptized, so, but you do have to believe that it is only by grace through faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, in his death, in his resurrection for someone to be a Christian. If you are if you are believing and trusting that my baptism or my or me eating a wafer or drinking juice is in some way meriting or earning my salvation or necessary for my salvation, then that's that's heresy. Because that is contrary to the very pages of Scripture. And I disagree with you. Okay. If if I believed that every if I if I believed in my heart that every that in order to go to heaven every Sunday morning I had to get up and eat a grape. And so for the rest of my life I got up and ate a grape. 
when I when I got up there, would they say, "You ate a grape every Sunday morning, you can't go to heaven"? I don't think that it's a problem to eat a grape every Sunday morning. If you didn't have if you didn't have faith in what Jesus did on the cross, no. Grape yeah, doesn't have anything to do with your salvation because it doesn't have anything to do with the forgiveness of our sins. But yes. Christ's work on the cross does. And if Mal's grandparents believe that Christ died on the cross for the penalty of their sins and they have believed that and accepted that, that's the, the minimal point of doctrine that every Christian has to have. And, 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 and if they have, and Lutherans do. then they're okay, you know. Sure now, all the other issues, oh, to get a little bit deeper than that and more, more um, in-depth, now there could be some differences in their baptism mode or where the kids get baptized or things like that. But the, the point of salvation, if, if that doctrine is the same as ours, then they're in the same position that we are. Dana, can I just? Yeah, that, make, I want to make sure that I was clear because I'm. I'm wondering if maybe I was unclear. What What specifically are you asking? And then well, maybe we no. might just have to like move on and talk about it okay. afterwards. What I'm saying is that if you believe in God and you accept Jesus, you are going to heaven. The other things that we do, be it Catholic, Lutheran, Baptist. Whether or not God, when we stand before the pearly gates, God's going to tell us that none of us were right. We all have errors, and He'll tell us what we should have been doing at that time. But it's not going to stop us from going in. You know, the Roman Catholics pray to Mary. You know, we don't pray to Mary. But. I don't believe that Roman Catholics can't go to heaven because they pray to Mary. They also pray to Jesus. I'm not saying I got I got. I'm not saying that a Roman cat that it's not possible theoretically for a Lutheran or a Catholic or any. I don't care what denomination they are. I'm not saying that it's not possible for someone to go to heaven who has prayed to Mary or has had communion or been baptized as a Lutheran. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying, based on the authority of God's word, is that only those who believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, are are true believers. That I believe I can say on the authority of God, on the pages of God's word, not in my own opinion. Now I don't know how that's teased out with, you know, a Catholic illustration or a Lutheran illustration. But if you believe in salvation plus anything else, that is not the gospel of grace according to the pages of God's word. So the Amish believe we can debate that further if you'd like. I don't want to circumvent. No, 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 no. This is this is a good point. This is a good. The spirit is no. You and I can talk about that afterwards, but. You know, it's a good discussion, and this is the this is the context in which we can have those kind of discussions. But it's the you and I God can, that takes you to heaven. You and I, but we have to believe the right things about God. Yeah. We can't just say I believe God. We have to believe the right things about God. Like when, a couple weeks ago, um, one of the things that I tried to reiterate and reiterate and reiterate, mm-hmm. it's according to the scriptures as revealed in the scriptures. You see, I can I can come up with some view of God and say, I believe in God. But just me me believing in God doesn't get me to heaven. It has to be my belief in the revelation of God Himself. And He's revealed Himself in the pages of God's Word. And so I have to believe that. I can't believe what I've manufactured or what somebody else has manufactured. I have to believe what God says in His Word. You and I can talk more about it afterwards. So, number one was the belt of truth. Number two, the breastplate of righteousness. This is practical righteousness or obedience. And I believe that Satan's scheme is temptation. So the first one, I'm getting my losing my train of thought. The first one is corruption to sound doctrine. The second is temptation.
Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in chapter 11, talks about sin as enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. So how does that attack injure us? So Satan tempts us, obviously, no doubt, that injures us. How does that injure us? Only if we succumb to it. Okay, well, okay, but assuming that, assuming that we do, yeah. right, assuming that we give in to sin, we know that sin is bad. Breaks our fellowship. Okay, breaks fellowship with God. So remember, it doesn't break the relationship with God. Remember, that's secure and stable. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But there is the enjoyment of that relationship that can be affected. It also affects our our standing here on earth. I mean, when, when we try to tell people that we believe a certain way, and then we fall, we've now injured the testimony we have of God to other people, and it, and it hurts us, hurts our credibility. Right. Mm-hmm. Testimony. Your character. So, I think that there's a sense in which obedience, um, how would I say this? Obedience produces, or like, begets obedience. You know, like when you read, so-and-so yeah. begets so-and-so begets so-and-so, if there's obedience, it, it, it's like a cycle. And that, not that sin ever can't, but there's but sin begets sin. Mm-hmm. Hebrews 12, verse 1, talks about or, uh, the author of Hebrews saying, lay off all this stuff, this extra stuff. And then he says, and the sin that what? So easily entangles us. There's this thing about sin that just entangles us, and it ensnares us. And it enslaves us, even after we're believers, because this is this is the realm in which we're talking. Is our spiritual growth, our sanctification? So we must be obedient people. We must be righteous people. We must, if I could put it this way, we must be who we are. Remember, we've talked about at nauseum how we are justified, we are declared righteous in God's sight. So if we are already that. Mm-hmm. We must be pursuing that in this life. Ephesians four twenty two through twenty five. We've read this, and it talks about put off your old self, be renewed in the attitude of your mind, put on the new self. And then it says, verse twenty five. Therefore, so in light of this reality that has already happened. Remember, this crucifixion of our, of our slavery to sin, and now we get this new nature with the Spirit of God and infuses life into us so that we can live a life pleasing to Him. We now have a power to obey. He says, therefore. Okay, so now let's get practical. There's this awesome thing that's happened to you. Now, go and put off lying and put on a heart of love. Right? So, we must obey. So, we have the breastplate of righteousness, we have the belt of truth, Boy, I got a cruise. Gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. I think this is the confidence that we can have in the fact that we are at peace with God. The confidence in the fact that we are at peace with God. If you are in Christ, you have peace with God. If I could put this another way, confidence in the fact that you are forgiven. You only have peace with God when you are forgiven. And what is Satan's attack against this piece of armor? It's accusation. Mm -hmm. Satan loves to accuse. In in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, he's actually described as as the accuser. So how does this form of attack derail us in our sanctification? When Satan comes and accuses you, what do you mean accuses you? Um, let's... There's a... There's the conviction of the Spirit and there's the accusation of Satan. If you pick those two things up again. Because they're... So you sin, right? Right. And you're a believer. So you sin and you repent of that sin. <clears throat> 
the Holy Spirit has convicted you of that sin. And if the Holy Spirit, if you are being led by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit convicts you of that sin. And what's the result of that Holy Spirit's work in your life? Restoration of fellowship, right? The Spirit's always bringing you back to God. But what's the result of the opposite? If Satan is constantly accusing you of the guilt of sin and constantly reminding you of the guilt of your sin and way, he has this amazing ability to weigh you down with the guilt of your sin. And then you think that you can't be forgiven. And then, yeah, I'm too bad of a sinner. I can't be forgiven of this. And that's 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 why I think this one is so hard to wrap our minds around. And I think he is so stinking good at this. And it's, he's so subtle because the reality is, is there's some truth to what he's doing. Because he's, he's right when he sits there and lays the guilt of your sin on you because he's saying, yeah, you are this person. You're not and you're like, yeah, you're right. I'm not. <laughs> I did do that. Hey, Troy. You and I have discussed this before. My father had a huge problem in that area. And I think it affected him the most. It stole all the joy that he could have had in serving Christ. But he was so down because of some circumstances he had gone through early on in life that he was dwelling on it constantly. My mom committed suicide because of that same thing. She did. Mm. She never let the past. She she just let it eat her up in guilt. Just like it just beat her up and, well. and that's what do it so yeah. I mean that, that's the difference between the spirit making us aware of our filthiness in us saying before God I'm sorry I want, I want to turn this direction away from where I just was and Satan accusing us and pointing the finger at us, and us just cowering away, one high. Not everybody does that. Though. No. You know, cowers away and hide. They're just like they think they're right all the time. So if the if the spirit's convicting, there's not usually guilt with that, right? There's, I'm all well, I think that yeah. I think there's a, an appropriate guilt, right? Because we all there's a sense in which we all should feel guilt when we sin, but there's a conviction that moves us back to what? And this is where I was eventually driving to, because I do want us all to be encouraged by this, because all of us that are believers here, we Please. can we can we can constantly look at this. Romans five one. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Right. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Later on in Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul says, There's nothing. Nothing can separate you if you're a true child of God. He says, For I'm convinced that neither death, life, angels, demons, add in there Satan, the present, the future, any powers, neither height, depth, Anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are in Christ, you're secure. There's nothing that can that, that, that can accuse you, right? Because you are in Christ. You are righteous in Christ. How can you be righteous in Christ and follow Satan? You can't be. Okay. Because there are those that say, you know, well, I'm fine. You know, I, I have salvation and, yeah, I'm fine. I'm forgiven. Well, yeah, well, that, I mean, that's, that, that goes back to kind of like the, what some people have called easy believism. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, well, once you're saved, you're always saved. I'm right. like, well, yeah, all of us are going to like, well, of course. Like, if you're genuinely saved, mm-hmm. like, okay, mm-hmm. let me, mm-hmm. let's just... Let, uh, go to James. Can I just interject one thing? Yep. Okay, because I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> I'm, I, just because of time, I might shut you up, though. Okay. Uh, as long as I'm allowed to do that. Everybody in this room is a sinner. We've all had sins that we would, that 
you know, I had made a deal with a friend of mine who's already gone to heaven that when he reads his sins, I, I'm not going to listen. And when mine are read, he's not going to listen. But, <laughs> but you won't be there. Because if you think, if you accept that God has forgiven you of your sins, if you accept that in your heart, what does that say about your goal? What you say, yeah, God. You can forgive me of your sins, but I'm not going to forgive me, so take that. If you accept God forgave you, then you better be willing to accept that you need to forgive you too, because you're a lot lesser than God. I'm not sure about the whole forgive yourself thing. I think it's more of a, this is who God has identified me with in Christ. Because because I am because God gives me a union with Christ that we talked about like second week in the class, third week in the class. God has united me with Christ, He's given me a new identity in Him. And that new identity is declared righteous. And so there's no boasting that I can do of my own. I can't look at myself and say, Oh yeah, Troy's awesome. No, I look and say, I am I am I am accepted by God in Christ, not Troy. I'm, I'm a dirty, rotten, ugly sinner, and I've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So it's, it, all glory goes to Him. It's not, it's not a matter of me. James chapter 2, though, um, because I think there was... Um, you were talking about, well, this like almost easy believism. Well, someone who says, well, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, but then their life is perpetuating in a state of well, I'm living for myself, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And we know Second Corinthians talks about, well, you're either living for yourself or you're living for God. And the gospel, Christ died so that you would no longer live for yourself, but for him who died for you and was raised again. But here is James 2, the second half of the, the book or the chapter, tells us what genuine, legitimate faith looks like. So someone could say, well, I have faith, but then they don't have anything to back it up. we got problems. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Such Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be, and, and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way... Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So, faith that is not accompanied by uh, by a changed life is dead. Verse 18, But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good that even the demons believe that, and they shudder. So the demons even have some knowledge and even some measure of belief, but that belief is not translated into behavior, right? Verse 20, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see, the person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Then he concludes, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So, it's scripturally inconceivable to have someone who says, yep, I believe, and then no transform life. Mm-hmm. Now, the muddiness comes in <laughs> when there's, this, there's the claim of, of belief, of salvation, and then... Well, what determines, like, whether there's enough? You know, like, I think that there's, like, people can be confused by that. And, and all I think, like, First John, the whole scope of First John is, is it's written to encourage people, believers, to have confidence that they have eternal life. 
But then you sit there and you read like, oh, I struggle with sin. You're like, oh, stink. You know, we're all reading like, oh my goodness, I'm not saved. At least I've read it and think, oh, I'm in trouble. But it's a life that is characterized by sin. Well, okay, so where is that line? I don't know. But the only thing that I can conclude is if we're asking the question, where's the line? I think we might be asking the wrong question. Not I'm saying that that's never an appropriate question, but we shouldn't be that close to the line. Our goal and agenda in life should be pursuing holiness and righteousness, and we ought to be pursuing that end and not trying to walk the line. And I'm not suggesting anyone necessarily trying to walk the line, but there's a life that is characterized by a faith that is a living faith, and a living faith evidences itself. Belief, as you said, results in behavior. We got to be done. (laughs) <laughs> and we still have three left. So we'll pick this up next week, um, and we'll maybe get done. Maybe we won't. <laughs> so let's pray, and then I'll let you go. Father, thank you for the time. I thank you for the discussion. Um, I pray that this kind of thing will be a tool that you use to sharpen us, to make us think. Um, I know that many of us will probably walk out with more questions and answers and that you would help us um, not to be scared of that, not to be, be frustrated by that, but that it would inspire us to all go out to study more, to come back ready for more discussion so that we can, as a body of believers, sharpen each other to try to get things right according to your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.